Laura Daggett is an assistant professor of political science at Virginia Tech. Her fascinating work on the histories of energy and within feminist political ecology is essential for understanding our age of accelerated planetary upheaval. In this conversation, she discusses how our current pandemic paradigm of considering the economy and well-being as two competing things really misses the fundamental fact that the economy, as conceived by capitalism, does not, and perhaps has never, served our well-being. The puzzle, however, that she poses here is, why don't we perceive it as such? Why, on both the left and the right, does the sacrifice of human and animal life to inaction and greed not trigger a deeper desire for a different system, or even, as she puts it in her award-winning book, The Birth of Energy, a new earth that is not as easily taken for granted? Despite all of these indications that we are beyond repair, though, she also makes it clear that capitalism has not captured all of our relationships and that other models of collective flourishing exist. So where do we look? In trying to model a means of communicating against powerlessness, Daggett offers a timely and historical reevaluation of the drive for dynamism that's existed since the 19th century, a drive to put the world to work that she exposes as the heart of so much suffering. Her work takes aim at the anthropocentric and often misogynistic roots of violence and outlines some of the ways that we can demand a healthier future with less work, more pleasure, and adequate abundance. I know you've done a few of these podcasts, Cultures of Energy, for example, you've appeared on that podcast. And I kind of actually wanted to start by asking you a question that came out of listening to you talk about your work on that podcast. Um, you you talk about how energy in biology is a question of thriving rather than a matter of just like moving matter around. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, and you note that you you didn't you felt like you didn't need to reinvent the wheel in advocating a certain kind of degrowth politics of, you know, wider resilience, um, that there is this precedent in biology for a different model of thriving. Um, and I know I'm kind of just jumping right into it here, but I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit, this this idea that there's an alternative model of flourishing that, that you find in biology. Yeah, you know, I think that gets to the heart of what I was trying to unpack in the book, which is that um, there are different ways that we have for calculating energy and using energy and thinking about energy, but um, we also have different ways of think of giving it value or meaning, like what is a good way to use energy. And I'm contesting the thermodynamic um, system in which it's about doing work, moving matter. I'm contesting it just as a universal description. And so, like you said, I'm looking at um, other possible, what you might think of as ends, the ends of energy use. And um, like you said, I mean, as soon as you start to think about organisms or life, it's obvious that moving matter is not the be all and end all, not just for humans, but for, for life itself. And uh, thriving doesn't not only doesn't always mean um, moving matter, it also doesn't always, it's not always benefited by growth. Um, 
you know, cancer is a good, obviously a good um, metaphor for growth that can be um, something harmful to organisms. So I I wanted to be, sh- I, although I didn't have time in the book to really go and explore in depth all these other um, scientific approaches to how energy gets used, I wanted to make sure to, like you said, note that it's not that we need some kind of new um, science of energy. Not only that, I think it's not that we even need um, to reinvent the wheel in terms of philosophy or theory, because there are lots of ways of life and cultures that have thought about energy differently. Yeah, of course. Like, and and this is what I think is so interesting and so compelling about your book is that it is providing this, um, you know, really multi-layered history of of energy that says, you know, there is one model that has been uh, normalized, right? And and it is this then, you know, deeply feminist book in the sense of trying to engage with the uh, and and reassess and defamiliarize these accepted notions of what you know, counts as normal, what counts as the good, uh, a good sort of uh, model of, of flourishing. And I think, you know, in my, in my reading, especially as part of this, this feminist reading group that I've been participating in, I've noticed that, you know, a lot of feminist thought really focuses on this question of how we can best flourish. Um, and even, you know, interrogating that notion of what we mean when we say we, um, and when we talk about what enervates us, what deprives us of that kind of energy, that kind of life force. Alexis Shotwell, who I've also interviewed for this podcast, has this great book, Against Purity, where she talks about wanting to um, sympathize with animals, animal life, frogs in particular, for the sake of the frogs. Um, and I think that's like such a wonderful, expansive framework for thinking about flourishing. Um, and, you know, animals themselves, like this is why you're kind of citing examples in biology. Um, they spend a lot of time idling, like they spend a lot of t- a lot of time idle, and yeah. you know there's a certain kind of beauty uh, to that. How do you think your particular genealogy in the birth of energy can contribute to this like larger um, discourse, this line of thinking about the relationship between social structures and collective flourishing? Like it is clearly a very timely book. Where do you think it sort of fits in this this larger dialogue? I think um, I, I really love that before I answer that, I love that you brought up how animals idle a lot because since the book, I've been thinking a lot about um, not only the ethic of work and the valorization of work, but also more deeply of dynamism, which I do mention a little in the book of, of how just being active and doing things and dynamics and even the notion of agency or action, which is really um, prominent even among critical theorists. Um, I think there's this deep commitment to that and the animal world, you know, I've been reading some biology around just the recognition in the last several decades that a lot of animals are not very active at all. Um, And that's not to say, I mean, every animal species is different. It's just that a lot of the times when, when we look to biology in political theory to kind of backstop our um, 
moral code or ethics. People, you know, have this simplistic reading of evolution. You know, I talk about this in the book about like the struggle for survival. And a lot of it is that this kind of um, sense that there's something natural about that. And so I find it so compelling that animal animal life is actually doesn't accord with that at all. It makes us look a little bit strange. Um, so I do think part of flourishing really will be to think about rethink activity. Um, so it's not just sometimes a critique of work is about how do we think, how do we free time for the activities that are meaningful to us, but also what do we want to think about in general and in what we mean by activity? Um, and I think this gets to, to more specifically your question of where does this fit in maybe to contemporary politics of energy and climate. I do think even among Green New Deals and um, and especially in the field of energy, which is a little bit uh, more captured by um, technocratic approaches, there's still this very dynamic kind of pro-work drive behind it. So it becomes a lot about um, new infrastructure, replacing fuels, building. It's not to say that that there's some sort of need to be categorically against all that, but I think we definitely... um, need to question that. Um, And and it concerns me a bit, the scope of some of the Green New Deal thinking and all the building questions that come to play in that, that it um, might be reinforcing that drive for dynamism um, that I think is part of putting us in the position we, we are in. Yeah, I had a question about your kind of reappraisal of this this kind of Green New Deal politics, um, because I think it's um, it's an important kind of intervention because uh, it is it is seen increasingly to be the the kind of uh, dominant other modality, the other you know the alternative to capitalist extractivism is the Green New Deal. New Deal, and the way that it, I think you're right, the way that it tends to be marketed is you know, this focus on putting people to work. Um, and, you know, like Mike Davis, for example, just recently spoke with the Jacobins, the dig podcast. And he talks about how like Biden's strategy of emphasizing that the green new deal means jobs actually almost backfired. And I, I think he, Davis even kind of misses the point that you make that we need to think more exp- expansively about well-being, more progressively about the need to go in a radically different direction and maybe provide people with the basic means of uh, taking care of themselves. Uh, so Davis is talking just purely about the tactics necessary to win in an, in an election by talking still about jobs. But what you're talking about is that the Green New Deal as a whole, as, a, as like a doctrine, as a discourse, is to focus still on like sacrifices. Um, there's this infamous memo, for example, that Green New Deal uh, activists kind of uh, put out that then the Republicans kind of seized upon and translated into this discourse of sacrifice uh, because it underlined the loss of like hamburgers and air travel. Um, <laughs> you know, like it, it, you're you're posing something different, a kind of politics of pleasure and of freeing time. 
um, that might resonate more deeply with people. Um, how does this maybe like speak to the need for like a recalibration? You, you know, you talk in the book about the felt nature of waged work and how that makes it really important politically. Is it too risky to attack the Green New Deal kind of discourse in this way, or is it like a necessary risk in some sense? Oh, I don't know. I'm so torn about that myself because just to see, um, just to see it become a topic of mainstream conversation and considered even by centrist Democrats is, you know, really important. And I think all of us are really cautious about um, wanting to support that effort while not completely undermining and attacking it. At the same time, um, it's disheartening, right, to see how um, the more radical edges get kind of shorn from it. And I do um, think what you're pointing out is there's something almost self-defeating about it. And this this is what concerns me the most, that, that when we play into this language of jobs um, and economic accounting, more more broadly, like how much are we gonna earn in the how much are we gonna grow the economy and then we're we're playing into the language of the right and we're playing on their terrain. And it's very easy then to get into this kind of like micro accounting war. And we already know that we all have different facts and different realities and I just don't see how that becomes victorious. Hmm. Um and I'm also worried, I think, both strategically and philosophically about this notion of sacrifice and asceticism, because um, I think philosoph- strategically, you pointed out, you know, that I, that we, we really, I think, give up some of our most powerful arguments, because part of advancing a politics of pleasure or what is to be gained in terms of well-being is also that we're not pointing out and really appealing to people about what what is what is hurting right now. Um, what yes, we might have there might be you know people, especially in the global north, among the wealthiest, who have these benefits of mass kind of cheap consumer goods. But what is the price of that? Um, not just, I think, of course we all know the price has been paid and is being paid for centuries by marginalized people, people of color, the global South and so on, but also by workers, by even, you know, the kind of workers who, who voted Republican in the last U S election. So I think that is important, but I also think philosophically it's important, this kind of politics of pleasure or of sensuality, because that to me is the route towards the kind of um, recognition of, of interdependence that we have with the more than human world is one in which we are affected by it. And so this, like the sacrifice and giving things up to me puts us more into that anthropocentric framework in which we treat the world as a resource that we either use or don't use. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know in reading your work on drones that you're 
invested in Sarah Ahmed's notion of kind of reorientation of, of you know, queering orientation. That's sort of, it seems to me, what this intervention does is, is it like takes us out of this familiar route, um, which is clearly not working, of, you know, emphasizing the kind of maybe violence done, uh, the scale of damage uh, in the Anthropocene, right? The this This tactic of communication is strategically and philosophically faltering in some ways. Um, and, and so I think this is, this is what I find so kind of, uh, and to use this kind of maybe fraught term empowering about your book is that, you know, you're acknowledging that the scale of damage, uh, created by industrialization tests human understanding. And, and so like that, that to me is, is something I wanted to definitely ask you about is that this question of, you know, not political strategies necessarily, but even strategies, strategies of academic or theoretical communication. You know, one of the things that they mention on the energy uh, humanities or the cultures of energy energy um, podcast is that your text is useful for climate communication because it has all of these um, really powerful turns of phrase. Um, and your work as a whole has, has shown this ability to kind of, as it were, go viral. Your work on petromasculinity has this specific kind of, um, you know, usefulness, I think, you know, how do you feel like we uh, can can model our communication tactics dif- differently now, knowing that what you call the affective strategy of, you know, doom scrolling of like encouraging this engagement with the difficulty of changing, um, you know, just it's not effective. It's not really working. Can we use the discourse of interdependence, for example, to suggest an antidote to this kind of like hopelessness, this apathy that seems to reign within the context of what Imre Zeman has called eco-apocalypse dis- discourses. I do think I have that intention in my work of, of trying to craft a language that has some strategic or even pragmatic um, application, probably just because I myself have that part of me that's always thinking about how can I, how can this, how can it work? How can I, you know, I'm maybe have this still optimistic part of me that, or hopeful part of me, although honestly, <laughs> struggling lately to, um, to nurture it. But I, um, I think because of that, I have, um, since embarking on environmental texts and environmental politics, at the beginning of my um, really graduate school career, I've always been turned off by um, the horror dystopian um, element. And in some ways that's personal. I mean, I think for other people that that can be, um, that can be a kind of language that works, uh, that's effective and affective. Um, But I, I think I had a sense that if for me that was very um, kind of led to a sort of despair or um, a feeling of um, powerlessness or kind of hopelessness that others might also feel that way too. And I do tend to think that um, this is kind of in line with Kathy Week's work that fear um, leads to a more reactionary politics. Um, and she has a really very, um, complicated notion of hope that I follow, which is not a sort, and, and I think Sarah Ahmed has her, has similarly a very complicated 
notion of hope, that it's not this kind of sunny, um, you know, everything's going to be okay, sheltered, privileged position, but that you can uh, operationalize hope as essentially just doing the next right thing, which is my favorite quote from the movie Frozen 2, which I watched <laughs> with my kids. <laughs> is it an interesting climate change movie, by the way? Um, so I, I do have a sense that just strategically, um, a language that helps people understand that the ways that the world is hurting and the ways that we are, and we is a troubling word, but we are hurting and the ways that others are hurting that are often invisible to privileged people, that all of those things, many of them are part of the system that at the same time might give us these little, you know, addictive kind of dopamine hits. Um, but that, that doesn't mean there aren't other kinds of well-being. And I think just a lot of humans know that already. And so there's a lot of people who are already working on solidarity and, and are already working in mutual aid and already have this feeling about the world that sometimes is very intimate. And this is maybe where the feminism comes in, um, in their intimate relations with others. And I think that there's a receptivity to the notion that well-being, like I don't think capitalism has captured all of our relationships. So I think if we can really invite people to imagine how those things can be emphasized and expanded and how we can build um, communities that foster more of that, um, I think we've already seen politically that that's very effective with, you know, people like Bernie Sanders. Absolutely. Um, there is the, you know, the, the birth of a kind of political revolution there. Um, it's kind of germinal thing that is about moving away from easy answers, populism, authoritarianism, hyper-masculinity. Um, and, you know, you mentioned Ahmed's kind of complex relationship to notions of hope. It's definitely something that I'm like really invested in this this chapter that she has in the cultural politics of affect on love is actually like the most depressing chapter in that book because she's really complicating the idea of love as something that can easily be co-opted, tainted, turned into rage and weaponized. Um, and this is something that comes up in the birth of energy. The idea that, um, you know, doomsday rhetoric can lead to this kind of doubling down this, this, you know, it can either, as you say, be met with receptivity, which you, you know, you know, you just referenced, or hostility. It can be met, you say, with uh, rage as much as generosity. And this is because, as you also put it, like grief work uh, can be unappealing, especially when these avoidance tactics are readily available. Um, and it seems to me that one of the things that you're certainly arguing in your uh, article on petromasculinity is that hypermasculinity or compensatory masculinity, reactionary masculinity, is that sort of avoidance tactic, which is such like, again, I think an important intervention, right? Like it's, it's saying that, you know, particular individuals um, are sheltered by this particular masculine uh, privilege, um, this, this love of masculinity. And so I, I definitely wanted to ask you some questions about that. And in particular, I guess, um, whether you ever wondered about 
the sorts of risks that you were taking in identifying westernized hypermasculinity as a target of critique and as a kind of core cause of the unwillingness to accept a move away from productivism. You know, you talked uh, um, about, you've talked about the backlash that you received um, by, you know, just identifying toxic masculinity and this weaponized defense of fossil fuel consumption um, as a problem. Did you at any point kind of not reconsider this particular, um, you know, line of thinking, but, but sort of, again, think about tactics, strategy, how to make the argument? I don't think I expected to be trolled um, because I think as an academic, you know, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel sort of like I'm just writing either into a void or to this, you know, very small audience of people who um, might be interested and be reading the Mm -hmm. same literature. And that's kind of who I picture I'm in conversation with. I don't imagine, or I didn't entertain the fact that there are RSS feeds that are, you know, going through keywords and abstracts Mm -hmm. of academic journals precisely to find you know, publications like mine. Um, And then uh, in a really organized fashion, kind of point targets at different academics and public intellectuals and journalists who are doing this kind of work. Um, So I think both it surprised me that (laughs) there would be this kind of bigger visibility or broader... um, uh, reception. On the other hand, I, I have since, once it happened to me, I then of course became really noticed and became interested in, um, other people that it has happened to. And I've started to realize this is a very common, um, new phenomenon. And, and I think we're still coming to terms with, with the psychological um, and emotional burden of that. I think especially for journalists who are writing frequently and really are more addressing a popular Mm -hmm. audience. But, you know, and a lot of feminists have faced this. Um, Yeah, so in in some ways I've, at first I felt like, why Mm. me? But now I've realized, oh, I'm just I'm just this little part of this very big and scary trend. And, I, you know, I think it's important to recognize and to talk. I've been talking more about it because I think um, I felt very alone. Like I I didn't know anyone who had been through that. But I think because it is happening more and more, it will be important for graduate students and other academics to know that this could happen and to have an idea of what they can do about it. And, um, which I, I didn't, yeah, I, I, I agree, right. That, you know, as Ahmed says, we need to kind of support those that make these kinds of complaints publicly. Um, and, and, you know, there are so many examples, as you say, it's actually quite common and, and the backlash is some indication that you're actually gaining traction that you've, you, you know, it's working. Um, but there is definitely a psychological and emotional burden and, you know, there is this whole history of the corporate use of public relations to discredit everyone from climate researchers to people who, you know, journalists who write about 
the the prevalence of CTE brain injuries in sport, right? Like to really try and defame them because of the potential that their intervention might matter. Um, and, you know, animal activists as well face this level of backlash and put their lives on the line. Um, and I wanted to actually relate it to something that you write about in your drone disorientations essay. Um, you know, you, you say flatly in that essay that it would help to emphasize drone disorientations by continuing to make drone things and bodies appear in public. Um, and it just seems to me that that's a really prescient line. Like we obviously need a kind of reckoning around um, the use of, of drones to kill people remotely. And, and this is what the article does. And, you know, I can see it being really useful in, you know, the context of teaching where it's hard to flesh it out in a way that actually makes it resonate. You know, it's, it's just such a completely foreign idea, but you, you, in linking it to masculinity and in particular hypermasculinity, do the work of trying to make it um, clear to people why they should maybe think about this, uh, uh, the reality of killing people remotely. And I guess, you know, I wanted to ask why you were interested in examining drone warfare and whether you do feel like making it public undermines some key element of the kind of distance that drones provide. Like how do, how does exposing these narratives undermine like narratives of actually having to do it and live with the grief? How does that undermine this ideology of clean combat? Yeah, I, you know, I think it does broadly connect to um, what it means, what what is the function of violence, both politically and also psychologically? What is its effect? And um, in the petromasculinity piece, I used Kate Mann's new idea about how to think about misogyny as a policing tactic, as the punishing force that um, comes down on bodies that are out of line. Um, and so in that sense, it, it really thinks about violence um, a- as having a function of upholding relations of power. But um, we all know people who are working in an ecological politics that one of one of the um, hard things to grapple with is sort of Rob Nixon's idea of slow violence, violence that is not only slow, so it's not very spectacular, it's easy to um, miss or to not have to be responsible or accountable for it when, when you are complicit in exercising it, but also the way that violence can be subterranean, can be made invisible to privileged people. Um, so there's this, there's this continuum of violence in which sometimes it is really about the performativity and the spectacular nature of it as having both a political function in terms of upholding power, but also this kind of political psychological function of upholding certain kinds of hypermasculinity, for example, in killing in war. But then there's also these other kinds of violence that are really important to consider and and that need to be made invisible especially to privileged people to to again grease the wheels of of how power is upheld and circulates and so i think my interest in drones was was coming 
from it in that way that that it is hidden from, for example, U.S. US citizens, um, and yet we have this like this uber patriotism of celebrating the military. But if you looked at actual narratives of people, it, they're hard to find. But if you and and they're purposefully hard to find. But if you looked at narratives from people who had been drone operators, you saw something really um, co- complicated about the toll that that kind of violence took, that it wasn't um, necessarily clean, like you said. Um, That's not to sort of put all of our pity or sympathy with drone operators, but rather to um, help us to think to just think more about um, drone warfare, like you said, to just make it public, but also to, to recognize the way that violence is in a relationship with masculinity and what kinds of violence in terms of its spectacular nature or um, its performative nature is seen as um, properly um, feeding that kind of masculinity. Wow, there's, I mean, there's a lot to unpack uh, there, but I immediately think about the fact that during this lame duck phase of Trump's presidency, he's decided to uh, reinstate the death penalty and execute uh, a, a number of people, right? Among them, Lisa Montgomery. Um, the I think you know she's the first woman who will who will be executed in something like seventy years. Like there's a way in which, in particular, legalizing um, spectacular forms of putting prisoners to death, so firing squad, poison gas, electrocution are certainly, I think, serve the purpose of, you know, insisting that Trump is a law and order president, right? This kind of, you know, almost misogynistic policing tactic of, you know, upholding the relationship of the sovereign to those that have committed um, crimes. Um, You know, I, I, I immediately think about that. And certainly, you know, in your article on petromasculinity, Trump is a key figure. He's a kind of exemplum of petromasculinity. And for that reason, I think in part, Gizmodo, in, in citing your, your article, employs images of Trump in like a big rig and Trump supporters in their trucks, like shutting down key traffic arteries, bridges, and so on. This is why I think your work is, is really valuable. It kind of crystallizes the links between these different forms of violence. And in particular, you know, the link between uh, fossil fuels and violence, obviously, is what you're what you're talking about here. What you term a kind of dis- disastrous convergence of gender and energy. Even though the the links to me are are really painfully clear, you know, you note the fact that it's something that is kind of understudied. You know, why do you think that's the case? Like, why is there some entrenched logic that makes it really difficult to expose this fundamental element of petrocultures that they are rooted in a certain kind of hypermasculinity? Yeah, it's a great question. I've heard I've I've had a couple of colleagues who have worked more in spaces where they've been with energy policymakers and um um more sort of institution type work and have commented on how it is sometimes easy to bring up gender now. There's been a gender mainstreaming. And of course, when we bring up gender, we're talking about oh, women's issues and can women have energy and women's representation and 
those things have become easier to talk about, but it's very difficult to talk about men and mm-hmm. masculinity um, still. And, uh, you know, I think I've found that in the first time I wrote about really, well, yeah, this, this kind of petromasculinity piece touched a nerve. I think partly it's that in general, feminism does get um, marginalized and dismissed. So there has been just, you know, generations of work in, in ecofeminism connecting gender masculinity and ecological violence. And even for me as a scholar, when I was in graduate school, I remember several senior senior faculty dismissive of ecofeminism and and in a way that kind of made it, it, it took me more time to come to it myself because of those comments and dismissive of them like, oh, well, those are just the people who say mother nature and they're, they're essentialist about gender, you know, these kind of offhand mm-hmm. comments. Um, whereas other, other fields where there may have been theorists who um, made arguments that are no longer fashionable, that's not a reason to dismiss an entire field. So I think in part, um, it's not necessarily understudied, it's more that it's marginalized. I think it's more obvious now to more people um, because of that notion of hypermasculinity, which is a term I took take from um, Anna Agathangulu and Lily Ling, who are two feminist scholars in international relations. And they use the term hypermasculinity to talk about a mode of masculinity that's mm-hmm. under threat. And that has this kind of this extreme reactionary response to a felt impotence and a felt kind of crisis around the a masculine identity that is increasingly difficult to maintain and under threat. And so um, it's easier to recognize that. That's a much more explosive um performative and spectacular kind of masculinity um, that we all can just see every day now, like you said, with the trucks and the, and, and just Trump really. So, so that might explain why uh, it may have been Mm -hmm. more subtle. Um, Yeah. I think you're, I think you're definitely right that there is something that is like really valuable about talking about hypermasculinity in relationship to burning fossil fuels in the sense that, as you say in your article, you know, um, we now experience burning fossil fuels as a knowingly violent experience. The links are too strong to not experience it as that kind of like knowingly violent act. And so, you know, reasserting what you call white masculine power is is this kind of way of just, you know, uh, leaning into that that act of knowingly doing violence to the planet. Like you can you can kind of exonerate yourself by just making it a question of inhabiting a, a habit of being. I really appreciate that, you know, that sort of whole line of thinking, uh, which I think in, you know, because of the risk that it takes in some sense of like courting this fragile reactionary backlash um, gets the conversation moving in a productive direction. Yeah. I, and I think that there are real um, strategic consequences to seeing that because already the need to address 
fossil fuels as a kind of power that has to be overthrown and not just as a technology that's going to fade away once other technologies are superior. Already, that is not as common as it should be, but it, it is um, easier to push for that, to push for an anti-fossil fuel politics when you when you start to recognize that um, there's there's not just a purely rational um, set of demands around around using fossil fuels that that it has um, there are now movements that are um, accelerating and intensifying fossil fuel use I think precisely because it is a way of demonstrating um, that this kind of white masculine power can be maintained and is resilient. Um, it's symbolic. And that's not only why fossil fuels are being burned. I think, honestly, largely we know it's because it represents trillions of dollars mm -hmm. of profit. But politically, that's not how they are being operationalized in terms of movement building on the far right. And, and on that point, I think, you know, I wanted to ask about uh, the response to COVID-19. I wanted to ask you in particular, because you are a theorist of work, um, how COVID-19 uh, has disrupted work patterns and ways of thinking about work. I mean, you know, there there's a way in which, for example, um, you know, uh, forms of work that have been in some sense feminized, you know, forms of affective labor, care labor um, are now lionized. The pandemic, this unprecedented moment is also, you know, um, making us think about how particular people who we weren't thinking about, who occupied spaces of ignored labor, um, now are, are, you know, putting their lives on the line, right? It's, it's sort of changing our relationship to work in, in specific ways. Um, you know, Amazon employees, for example, uh, and the, the miles and miles that they walk in warehouses are now not invisibilized forms of labor, but have become a little bit more, I think, visible. You talk in the book about this maneuver of hiding waste through screens that denies the value of certain forms of labor you know, do you do you see a kind of potential for, you know, a kind of, you know, what you term a kind of threatening insurgent economy and ecology of work um, that just makes visible how essential these kinds of workers are? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about that. I, I was listening to NPR and they were talking about how they, uh, the CDC and others are going to roll out a vaccine and that essential workers are being considered as um, early in line for a vaccine and how do you define an essential worker? Hmm. And I thought, well, that's, that's going to be an interesting conversation. And I bet there's not going to be a lot of, you know, critical theorists in the room to help with that. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I think you're right that in that sense, people are starting to think about or see or realize their dependence upon all these kinds of labor, especially intimate kinds of labor. Like um, you saw in the spring, all these articles about, is it safe to have my nanny come? Is it safe to have the house cleaner? You know, all these people who are really intimately involved in the lives, especially of, of privileged Americans. Um, 
and don't often have any kind of protection of their job, of benefits, maybe even of citizenship. Um, so maybe there's some um, possible, I think there are certainly possibilities there for building um, more uh, worker movements on the basis of that. Mostly I'm, especially in the last few months, feeling more disheartened to, and it most, it, to see the um, constant repetition of the economy versus health. Mm-hmm. And at first, when I started to hear this, <laughs> this binary, I thought, well, this is brilliant because it's really such a remarkable illustration of how the economy as we as it's conceived by capitalism is really not is really not serving people's well-being and actually is directly opposed to it but instead of you know instead of people i think reflecting on that in a critical way it's almost like an acceptance of that and um and I don't think it's confined to the right either, that it feels like people have just accepted that there's this collateral damage necessary to keep the economy going. And even, you know, with the CDC reconsidering its quarantine length, I heard some of the scientists say, well, the main reason is because people don't want to miss work to take a test because they're afraid if they take a test, they're going to lose their job if they have to quarantine for two weeks or they're going to go without pay and not be able to feed their families. And what frustrates me is nowhere on the table that I've seen, you know, in kind of on NPR in the newspapers, do people think, well, how about we guarantee people have sick leave? How about we guarantee benefits for them? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the imagine the public imagination just kind of stops at that point. Well, I guess we need to make quarantine shorter. So that's a little frustrating for me because I do think you're right that it's made this visible, really visible, that the economy is in opposition to our well-being. And yet I, I don't really see yet, maybe it just hasn't come yet, I don't really see even the ability to imagine um, what could be different yeah um and it it seems like there is this kind of you know irreducible remainder or something that is you know uh almost you know perceived as transhistorical and in your book you talk about this to some extent like uh on on page 10 of birth of energy you you talk about the issues with naming the human species as the problem that humans seem to crave ever more energy like there is this line of thinking that is so essentialist that doesn't seem to allow for any sort of transformative thinking on a post-work future, ways of being otherwise. What do you think is valuable, I guess, about the historical approach that you take? And do you think that this is maybe missing in the discourse around COVID-19? I mean, that energy work connection is not really being fundamentally questioned. Um, you know, it, it, do we need to read more Ahmed? <laughs> like, do we need to really, you know, engage with how to you know, rupture productivism's hegemonic place in our lives? And how do you just tactically make that something that people can understand? Well, yes, everyone should read more Ahmed. Um, Tactically, I do think that um, 
really uh, policies that address people's just basic needs and and ability to have dignity in their lives, in their housing, in their food, in their families are important. So, you know, I'm encouraged even by, I've seen how um, the idea of forgiving student debt has, has, is being considered. Of course, it gets watered down and watered down and watered down. And who knows if, you know, what version of it might actually ever pass. But people are talking about that in terms of COVID. Like, well, this could actually be, if we're talking about economic recovery, how about freeing up loan payments for all of these people who could then use that to go buy food and, you know, put that directly into the quote unquote economy. Um, So, you know, sometimes I do think uh, as much as I get, Um, when we all get depressed about the current moment, it's important to recognize that there are these movements that have been working for years. Black Lives Matter, um, I think the debt movement grew out of David Graeber's work in Occupy Wall Street, years of work on the ground to build these ideas that at first feel incredibly radical and almost impossible. But that when the time is ripe and after so much work to kind of extend it and build communities in, around these ideas, they, they emerge and can be considered. So, you know, just because I, I guess I'll correct myself just because right now no one is imaginatively reconsidering how we could not oppose the economy to well-being doesn't mean that maybe um, that won't be something that bubbles up in the future. But yeah, I do. I think in the in my book, that's why I kind of mentioned Kathy Weeks in her book talks about universal basic income and shorter working week, not as like the end of a utopian vision, and that's everything will be great once that happens, but really as kind of levers that open up new possibilities, new ways of being, um, new paths for people to start to, to have enough um, security in their everyday life to, um, to, to be able to pose these questions to their communities about well-being. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I'm actually going to be uh, talking to Kathy Weeks uh, this weekend for the for the podcast. So, uh, oh, that's so exciting. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I think, yeah, the, the, the fact of emphasizing basic needs, you know, is a really, you know, um, important ground for for politics um, and food in particular. You mentioned food uh, is such a unifying kind of uh, issue. And on this question of food, you know, I, I wonder about because, you know, there is this way in which like we have a privileged position uh, to some extent, you know, and, and you do talk about how the um, the kind of rhythm of, of uh, a writer's life is is different from, you know, the the, the kind of, pay, you know, waged labor um, that's become hegemonic. It's it's a kind of vestige of a previous model of, of work to some extent. But, uh, you know, I think nonetheless, you know, the, there is like I'm kind of joining a lot of different things together, like the the fact of 
you know, the way we eat, how certain people have to, you know, eat on the fly, eat on the job, eat in their cars, you know, do the keto diet in order to make their food work harder, these kinds of things, you know, in, in the context of um, intellectual labor, you know, we, we often exist in spaces that are conducive to slow food. And there's this kind of, you know, radical politics of trying to um, experience food in this kind of almost spiritual way. Um, but it, it, I guess the, the last question I want to ask you is this question about the work-life balance, perhaps, of, of you know, intellectual laborers. You know, there is this notion in autonomous Marxist philosophy that intellectual labor, the creative class, is something that Marx didn't precisely anticipate and that, you know, it's something that destabilizes what you call uh, the use of work-life balance as a tactic of governance. Like, it really messes with that to some extent and makes the distinction between work and labor um, uh, and free time kind of indistinct. Where are you at in terms of your own relationship to the work that you do? You know, like in preparing for this podcast, for example, I made the choice to write questions out by hand, even though I knew that that wasn't the most efficient way to do the work, because I find that slower tactile process just makes me more happy in my work. And I just made that kind of decision. Do you often have to do this kind of cost benefit analysis when it comes to your own professional commitments? I mean, you've chosen to do this, so <laughs> that's just yeah. for you. Um, like, how do you how do you basically um, manage your time? I guess is in part my question. Yeah, um, how, I'm sure you've seen the slow academia. Um, mm-hmm. I and I'm forgetting who is behind that, but. You know, yeah, you're right. We have this model of intellectual life that feels very much out of temporal rhythm with waged work. Um, and yet, especially in the U.S. and I know also in the U.K. Um, and maybe even globally, that higher education is increasingly corporatized and following a neoliberal model that's asking us to account for ourselves, you know, by metrics and, um, and wants to kind of turn our, turn academia into a more, um, more familiar job. And for me personally, having kids has kind of forced a slow (laughs) academic pace because uh, I have never really had any support from any university I was at in terms of like leave, paid leave or sub- subsidies for childcare. Um, so I guess with the exception, ironically, of this COVID time, well, not even that. I mean, we'll see. Our university is talking about it, but so far I'm using a research leave that I was granted, which happened to fall right now. And essentially that's going to be most of that time is going to be used for teaching my kids um, who are home a lot. So um, for me personally, I have always felt like um, I, I really, my dream in life is to be a writer. And if money were no object. I think I would just be writing all the time. 
Um, but I do get a lot out of students too. It's maybe not my passion, but I actually think it's really important to helping me be a better thinker. So that part is important, but I always, I, I've told myself to try to approach academia and the whole tenure track and all the pressure always like, um, this is something that I could walk away from if it drains all the joy out of it. Um, and therefore I have to, I feel like it's a constant fight and it's probably something just in my, my head, but I, there's a lot, you know, that's constantly telling us to be busy, 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 busy and productive, productive, productive. And that's very counter to thinking like it took me almost 10 years to write this book. Of course I had babies along the way, but when I think about that pace, you know, it sometimes takes, you can't just sit down and have an idea. Um, there's a lot of even sort of dead time where you just daydreaming and nothing happens. And it's hard not to feel guilty at the end of just, I read like four things and I uh, don't know what else happened. It's hard not to feel like, well, I didn't do anything. Hmm. I try to remind myself that um, that is the nature of just thinking and curiosity and we have to have time for idleness and procrastination and daydreaming and how do you make that time I don't know it feels like one of my advisors told me oh that's what you do in the summer and on the breaks <laughs> I'm just like no in the summer I'm taking care of my kids mm -hmm. so I don't I mean, I think it's a constant struggle. I'm always reminding myself it's a privileged position to be in, to even have a secure job. And of course, that's the that's the stick that's wielded, right? Is it, if you're not productive enough, it won't end up being a secure job. So I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. I mean, what do you do? <laughs> oh, I'm still figuring it out as well. I, but I will say, you know, as as a person who makes their living, as it were, uh, uh, working with ideas, have to kind of um, balance, uh, uh, as you say, these professional compulsions and commitments with some 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 kernel of something that was like uh, spontaneous in you that thinks that these things matter, that we should care about them. Like this is why I care about your work is that. It is, um, you know, a, a critique of the structure itself. And, and I, I sense that you are vexed, in a sense, by the, the structures that you're working within and, and the limits uh, that are placed on our ability to imagine ways in a, to go in a different direction. I mean, Ahmed has this wonderful idea in what's the use of um, the kind of double notion of resignation that resignation can be a matter of resigning yourself to the conditions under which you work, but it's as much about removing yourself from the conditions of work, right? You can resign, you can walk away, as you say. And I think there is something to be said for, uh, you know, emphasizing the doubleness of that idea of resignation, that um, we don't have to leave, but we do have to carve out some degree of autonomy against the, you know, constant demands on us, the, the threat of insecurity that's posed to us. But yeah, it's been fantastic talking to you. Oh, it's so, so nice to talk to you. You're such a generous interviewer. I really appreciate all, all the handwritten work that you put in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no problem. 
you know, the podcast has really been about kind of uh, increasing my drive to not just look at um, look at academic work as something that is static, but, you know, it dawned on me that I can actually contact people who produce this work and talk to them, <laughs> you know? You know, it's funny because I I think I'm realizing myself, I have some kind of celebrity complex, right. like people who write before I wrote much myself, it's like if somebody wrote a book, then like they're not a real person. <laughs> like I've never written Kathy Weeks and she's so important to my work. Um, if you have any questions, I'll share them with her. This would be maybe a new uh, segment on the podcast. Do you have any questions for my next guest? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I do. I, I mean, I, I she doesn't really mention the environment, um, which is fine. She's she's doing quite a lot in that book, and that's not at all a critique. Um, but I, you know, was interested in how environmental movements do think about anti-work as important, and I want I would just wonder what she thought of that. I'll definitely ask her. Uh, well, thanks, Kara, for your time. Thanks for your time. Okay.